0: Please be seated. The sermon text this afternoon is from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. You can turn there in your Bible or follow along on page 10 of your bulletin. Hear the word of our God from Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 1. There is now, there is therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, our Father and our God, we come to you this afternoon longing to hear your truth lord we are weary from a week of living in a world stained by sin and going about the business that you give us father we confess as we already have we've made many mistakes and yet your grace is new and so father we've arrived to this moment you have brought us exactly here for right now to hear from your word lord i pray that you would use me and my frailties and even my words to speak to your people would you open our hearts and our minds by your spirit to receive truth? And may, may this time be one where you are glorified. And may we not just gain knowledge of you and facts about you. But Father, would you draw us closer to you that we may love you more and live for you all the more every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, back in 2015, I was deployed on a ship with the Navy. And after months at sea, we pulled into Panama. It was our first port. And some of us got invited to a party at the president's, they called it a palace, but it was basically just a big mansion. And when we went to this party, it was phenomenal. They had tables and tables of food all around us, uh, just a feast, everything you could imagine, whole roast pig, fruits, and you know all sorts of delicacies and desserts. And we had been living on ship's food which is the lowest form of cafeteria food known to man. Um, and so the spread before us was irresistible. It was, it was perfect. The hardest part of the night was actually choosing what to put on your plate because there are only so many hours in the night and so much room in the belly. This is our situation in Romans 8, by the way. God here has given us so much spiritual meat in this one short chapter that it's almost overwhelming to even know what to choose for a single sermon. And yet, here I am, I chose this text, and we have it before us. Romans 8 is a feast. It is one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture. Yes, all of Scripture is God-breathed, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, and as useful as God's Word. But just as not every part of creation displays God's glory the same way as another, so too some places in Scripture are truly mountaintops, that give us a breathtaking view of God's glory and what he's done for us. That's Romans 8. Now, Romans 8 is also bookended by two great truths. The first truth we read in Romans 8, 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the second truth is at the very end of Romans 8, which is that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. These two truths point to the theme of the entire chapter, which is our security in Jesus. If you're in Christ, you are God's forever. These two truths point us to that that theme. And Paul, who wrote this chapter, draws us to this conclusion at the beginning of Romans chapter 8, by doing what he's done the entire letter, this entire book of Roman, he contrasts two things. That's his style. He takes two things and he shows you the opposite side. We have law and we have grace. We have works and faith. We have wrath and peace. We have slavery and freedom. Death being alive. Adam, Jesus. And here, flesh and spirit. Flesh and spirit. You see, a Christian is necessarily spiritual. Actually, all people are spiritual, because a human is two things. A human is a body and a soul combined together. And that's why death is the unnatural state. It is when a body and a soul are not united together. You see, but a Christian, though, is a spiritual in a completely different way. And I don't mean in the speak in tongues kind of way, or the raise your hands you know, when the song gets good kind of way or make life decisions by some sort of vague feeling kind of way. What I mean is the greatest distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian is that of spirit in every sense of the word. This is always an interesting concept for us Reformed Presbyterian types, I think, because believe it or not, we're not really known for our spirituality. Maybe that's a surprise. You know, with the frozen chosen... See, you guys are doing it now. You're just sitting there listening, okay? We are known maybe for our love of Scripture, our commitment to God's sovereignty, maybe for our precise, well-developed, intellectual, systematic theology. And all those things are great, but they don't make a Christian, do they? They don't. See, pagans can be intellectual. Unbelievers get PhDs in biblical Greek. A Christian is someone who has the Spirit of Christ inside of them. A Christian is someone who is not defined by any other reality, but that they are in Christ and indwelled by the Spirit of the living God. And Paul here is drawing our attention to this distinction between flesh and spirit, to the realities of what it means for a Christian to live a life in the Spirit. And the first thing we see he does in verses 1 through 4 is he tells us the Spirit sets us free. And if you're a note-taking type, that's your prompt. The Spirit sets us free. This is actually a past, a past action. In fact, Paul's going to walk us through past, present, and future in this, the verses we have this afternoon. In the past, action is the Spirit sets us free. This is why he starts out in verse 1 with the bold proclamation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are Bible scholars, and I know there's many, you know that any time you read the word therefore in a Bible sentence, you've got to think about why is it there? What is it referring to? And I'm here to tell you this particular therefore is Paul basically saying in light of everything I've written in the first seven chapters. It's not just what he wrote in chapter seven. It's kind of the whole thing. Specifically, in light of the contrast that he has described, remember, he's drawn a line in the sand. The good side of that contrast grace, faith, peace, freedom, alive, Christ, indwelled by the Spirit. Those who are on that side of the contrast, those under those circumstances, living under that umbrella, no condemnation. In fact, in the original language, the first word of Romans 8 1 is the word no. No. It's a way of putting an emphasis in the original language. It's emphatic. And Paul isn't talking about being forgiven of sins, although he certainly means that. Being justified in a legal sense, that's not what he's referring to, the word condemnation means penalty, servitude. It's the punishment you would get following a guilty verdict. And so not only is a Christian considered not guilty, justified, but, a, but in Christ, a Christian is no longer serving the law of sin and death as a form of punishment for being guilty. Paul thinks of the law like being in prison. You see, a person who's outside of Christ, to Paul and to God's word, is in a prison serving a life sentence. They're bound, unable to escape. They're confined and defined by sin, and ultimately what sin produces, which is death. Those who are in Christ those who are united to him, those who are indwelled by his spirit, do not have to serve the old law of sin. Take a look at verse 2. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Another contrast. We have a law of the Spirit, a law of life, we have a law of sin and a law of death. And Paul says if you're in Christ, you're under the new law. It set you free. The law replaces the law of sin and death, and it comes to us by way of the Spirit of God coming into us, indwelling in us, empowering us, and changing us. And this law, this law that comes by the Spirit, is stronger than the old law. It trumps. It wins. It breaks the chains. It opens the doors of the prison, and it says, you are free. The Presbyterian theologian, Hodge, he says, those in Christ are placed beyond the reach of condemnation. I love that, that kind of metaphor. It's almost like condemnation is this like guard trying to get you back and trying to grab you and snatch you. And it's like you're, just, you're high enough away, you're far enough away that no matter what happens, no matter what happens for a Christian, that condemnation can't grab you by the ankle and trip you and bring you back into prison. And no condemnation, this concept, is kind of the flip side of the coin of justification. I alluded to that already, that a Christian is justified, forgiven of sins. But they're really like they're one and the same. You don't get one without the other. So on one side of this coin, this gospel coin, it says, justified. And that's, that's the idea of God as a holy judge pronouncing you innocent, saying you're not guilty. Another has taken your sin from you. Another has given you his perfect righteousness and his innocent standing before the law. And that person is Jesus. That's that's justification. And the other side of this coin, though, is being free from the condemnation that that guilty verdict brought. And so what God's word is doing here is reminding us that if you are justified, which you are by faith in Christ, you are also free. Free from the old bondage to the law. Free from having to sin from banging your head against the wall, trying to demean the demands of the law. You're free from that. You're free from having to serve the law and incur the consequences perpetually of being a lawbreaker. And this freedom is made possible only by God. Verse 3 tells us that God did what was impossible for us. Human merit, human achievement, human effort would never result us. only God could do it. He sent Jesus to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law and to condemn sin in the flesh. F.F. Bruce wrote, he writes this, the law prescribed a life of holiness, but it was powerless to produce such a life because of the inadequacy of the human material on which it had to work. You see, it's our sin, our flesh, our nature that made the law ineffective for righteousness. Righteousness. We just can't keep the law. Maybe you've met somebody who's tried. Maybe you've been in that phase in your own life. I remember a phase of my life where I thought, you know, I'm just going to pull myself up by my bootstraps and be good enough, right? We try to keep the law and in a way that we're trying to earn, you know, and get good with the law, that kind of way. But no matter what, it always produces the same result. Guilty. No matter how hard we try, no matter how many times We bang our head against the wall or how many books we read, how much good works of charity we do, how many times we take communion, how many times we pray or go to church or whatever it is that you try, the result is always guilty because the problem has never been the law. The problem is you. The problem is me. And because of that, the law is impotent and powerless and has no ability to make us right before God. And So God steps in. He condemned sin in the person of Jesus Christ, on his very Son, who was just like us, and yet not. Notice that Paul says that God sent his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. You know, flesh is kind of a gross word. I have to say it a few times in the sermon, so I apologize, but it's just kind of a gross word. In the Greek, it's the word sarx. And it's a term and a word always used by Paul to mean our sinful nature. In fact, some of the English translations will, will actually never translate this word sarx as flesh. They'll translate it as the phrase sinful nature. Um, and I actually think it's a mistake. If you have the NIV, the New International Version, uh, Romans 7.25, which is just just um, before our passage this, this afternoon, it, it'll translate it like this. In my sinful nature, I am a slave to the law of sin. But I like how the ESV translates that. It says, instead of in my sinful nature, it writes this. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. With my flesh. And I think it's a shame to translate this word always as sinful nature because there is a difference between flesh and sinful nature. Flesh is on you. You're stuck in it. You can't get away from it. Flesh is something that you have to contend with while you're in the body. It's a misuse of the body, ultimately. It's our nature, apart from Christ. And yes, it does mean our sinful nature. But it is, it is not just like this abstract concept of a nature that's sinful. It's, it's on you. You have a sinful nature. You still do. And you must wrestle with that constantly. It's not just this ethereal concept. And that's why Paul used such a carnal, visceral word as flesh. Flesh. Everybody knew that. We knew what it meant. Paul could have constructed a Greek phrase that meant sinful nature, but he didn't. He used the word flesh. Because flesh is the opposite of spirit. It's your carnal side. It's your side that doesn't follow God. It's your side that is against God. It's opposite. And when Paul says flesh, he means the misuse of our body, contrary to what God requires of us. Contrary to the life in the spirit. It's our old self our old mind, our old attitude and inclinations, our old ways apart from Christ. And so we can accurately say in a Pauline way that Christ was in the likeness of sinful flesh, like it says in verse 3, but he wasn't flesh. At least as Paul means that. I have to be very careful there because I want to make sure you understand Jesus has had a body, has a body, still has a body. Jesus is 100% human, just like we are. But he didn't have flesh in the way Paul means it. Jesus doesn't have a sinful nature. Jesus never misused his body that God gave him in any way, shape, or form. Always perfect. And so in this way, Jesus' body was not flesh like ours was flesh. And this enabled God, through his Son, to do what was impossible by us. By the indwelling of the Spirit in our lives, he did something we could never do on our own. He has set us free from the bondage of the law, he has set us free from our flesh by coming in the likeness of flesh, but never succumbing to it or misusing it. This is why Paul can write something, something as crazy as the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us. Verse 4. The righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in you. How? How could you fulfill the righteous requirements of the law? You, you're in the flesh. How? Because God's spirit is in you. Because Christ dwells in you. He has set you free, and he has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law in you. You see, by faith in Christ, and faith alone, we are indwelled by Christ. We are given the new nature, and we are free from condemnation. And so, in, in, in one sense, you are not flesh any longer. I mean, yeah, you still have a body. In fact, you still have a sinful nature, and so do I, and it wants to rear its ugly head every second of every day it wants you to let it grow let it go wild and it wants to tear up your life but you are not a slave to it you are free you have a new nature and the righteous requirements of the law have been fulfilled in and through you because of god's spirit so that's what paul tells us first he says this is what's true you have been set free and there's no condemnation because of the indwelling spirit in your life past and now he turns our attention to the present this is found in verse 5 through 9 and if you're a note-taking type it would be this is a second point which is the spirit sets the direction of our mind the spirit sets the direction of our mind this is a present thing now that we are free from the law and free from condemnation which is true for all who have faith in Christ and indwelled by the spirit there is a present reality which is both true and should be embraced. It is true, and yet we have a choice of whether we will participate in it and embrace it or reject it. Verse 5 through 9 explains that those who are of the Spirit set their mind on things of the Spirit. And the point is this. As free people, no longer under the condemnation of the law, the Spirit changes the entire outlook of our lives in the here and now. It sets a direction. He sets a direction of our mind. To become a Christian involves being transferred from a realm dominated by the flesh into a realm dominated by the spirit. And it makes complete sense that because we have a change in status, we also change, we receive a change in our perspective. Again, think of the analogy of being in prison. The man or the woman who was in prison and bound by that punishment, who is now free and they're out of jail... The, the reality for them is, is their mind is not set there. They're not captivated by that. They don't have to live as if they're in jail anymore. They, they could embrace that. They could. I and mean, embrace their freedom, or they could also revert back and live as if they were in jail. In fact, there are stories of people who have been, who spend so much time incarcerated, they become institutionalized, and when they get out of prison, they, they, they almost can't function because they want to live again like they did under that oppressive system of punishment. A Christian could be the same way. We are free, and yet there's a sense in which sometimes we, we kind of want to go back to the old way. And Paul says you either have a mindset on the flesh or you have a mindset on the spirit. It's not, there's, no, there's no in between. You're either one or the other. And this is why he instructs Christians, for example, in Colossians 3 2, to set your mind on things above. Why would he tell us that unless we have a choice? We have a choice whether we set our mind on things of the spirit and things above or whether we live here in the things of the flesh. But the reality is we're out of the prison. The reality is we don't have to set our mind that way again or live that way. It's not our reality. But we have a choice every day. To set your mind, it means to orient your life towards something. You know, we do this all the time in lots of different ways that aren't as spiritual, just basic things. Like recently, I, for example, I flew to L.A. about a week, uh, two weeks ago to go climb some mountain with some friends in the Sierra. And the day before I left, my mind was set towards the trip. I mean, it was set in the direction of my trip. And you knew this was true because, well, I checked my flight status, got on the look, um, I finished packing, you know, I reserved an Uber to pick me up. I kind of thought about what time do I need to get to JFK, because it takes 17 hours to go through security, you know, and set my alarm clock for 3 AM. I was already living in the reality of the trip that I was about to embark on, but the trip wasn't here. But I had set my mind in that direction. This is what it means to set your mind. And as a Christian, in terms of our spiritual life and the way we live, we are to set our mind on things that are above, on the things that are the Spirit, and to live now in the reality of that which will come. And Paul here is not exactly challenging us entirely to accept that mindset, although, again, he he does that, and he, he certainly does that in verses 12 through 17. I think the main note here is this is true. You have a mind by the indwelling of God's Spirit that is set on the things of the Spirit. It is true. You are a Christian. You have, because of the Spirit of God dwelling in you, a mind set on the Spirit. Yeah, we can quench it, We can grieve the Spirit. We can destroy the temple. We can sin and revert back to our old selves. We can march, so to speak, back to Egypt and start making bricks without straw again. But the reality never changes that you, as one who has faith in Christ, has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you, always helping you live according to the Spirit. That's just the landscape that is true in your life. I kind of think what Paul is doing here is very similar to what happens to a married couple when they get pregnant for the first time, okay? You know, they find out, they take a pregnancy test, and, it, you know, the, I forget how it works now. Three dots or something, lines. Okay, it's been a while, but you get it. And there's a positive, and you're excited, and yet, unless you're having morning sickness, unless the, the woman's having morning sickness, the man doesn't, right? Their pregnancy may not feel very real. Sure, you have this thing that shows... Some lines, but, and then you go get the first glimpse of that heartbeat, right? The fetal Doppler, put it up to the belly, and you hear with your ears a beating heart. And that just makes it come alive and understand that there's a baby in that womb growing. Or maybe you get that first ultrasound and you see that little black and white grainy picture of a little baby complete with the toes and the fingers and the face. Or maybe you get one of those really creepy yellow 3D ones, right? Those ones are out there. And you go show everyone this picture because you're so excited. And the reality of this baby coming is so real to you now because you've seen a glimpse of what it's like. But getting a glimpse of that baby in the womb, it doesn't actually change the situation. It just makes it feel more real. It does help the parents adjust to the new reality, well, that they are parents and they're going to be changing poopy diapers soon and losing out on a lot of sleep. These things help the mind of the parents towards their new situation and their future. So you as a Christian, it's no different. You have a new nature. You are now hardwired to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. You now, because of this new setting of your mind, this new direction that the God has given you, can please God and live a life of peace and righteousness. It is possible for you. Do you realize this means that sin is not inevitable for a Christian? It's not. Now, you will sin, and I will too. Okay? I don't believe that we can achieve perfection in this life. I don't think scripture tells us that. But in any given moment of temptation or moment of your life, sin is not inevitable. You don't have to sin. You have a new nature, you have a new helper, you have a new setting of your mind. Augustine taught that man actually had four states, mankind as a whole, four different ways of being, and they corresponded to the fall and Christ and various things. He said that there was a state of man before the fall, there was a state after the fall. There was a state before Christ, and there was a state in glory. Okay, so four kind of, you know, buckets that every person is in, depending on where they are. And after the fall, before a person has faith in Christ, Augustine said a man, a person is able to sin and unable to not sin, which is just kind of wordsmithing, saying you're going to sin, and you're not going to do anything else, because you're a slave to sin, a bond, bondage. But the reborn man, that third bucket the one who's in Christ, who has the indwelling of the Spirit in this new setting of their mind, that person is able to sin and able to not sin. What a powerful concept. This is what Scripture teaches us. This is not Augustine. He's pulling it from the truth of Scripture. He's pulling it from Romans chapter 8. In fact, the Westminster Confession also tells it to us like this in the chapter on sanctification. It says, There abides still some remnants of corruption in every part. Every part of us. Even if you're in Christ, there's still some remnants of corruption. Whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war? The flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. That's the reality of a Christian. Is you have this nature that is fleshly, that will war against the spirit, and the spirit will war against the flesh. But it is not inevitable that you will sin. And so for those of us in this third state, those of us who believe in Christ and put our faith in him, we have one foot in the state of depravity and one foot in a state of glorified perfection. We're just torn between living by the Spirit and living for the flesh. And in any given moment in time, one of those realities might be more present in your life. Paul reminds us here that the Spirit sets our mind towards God And in the here and now, right now, right this moment as you're sitting here, you are empowered and indwelled by God's Spirit to not sin. You are fully indwelled by God's Spirit and able to live in the reality of your future destiny where you will be glorified. The correct response to that is, do it. Set your mind on the Spirit. Embrace who you are and who you will be. I think it's one of the most powerful things a Christian can learn is, you don't have to give in to the flesh. This is why Peter writes in 1 Peter 2:11, "Beloved, he uses that word beloved. He cares about these people. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, as pilgrims, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul." He says you just abstain. They wage war against your soul. So the second thing the Spirit does, as we see, is it sets our mind. It sets our mind on the things of the Spirit. So we have no condemnation, a past event. We have our mind set on the Spirit in the here and now, and we're empowered to live for God. And the third thing, and the last thing we're going to say, is the Spirit sets our hope. The Spirit sets our hope. And this is, this is the hope we get now, but the hope is for the future. And this is found in verses 10 and 11. Uh, There was a young boy named Claude Eli who was 12 years old. This was over 100 years ago. He ended up becoming a songwriter and a preacher in Virginia. But when he was 12 years old, he became very sick with tuberculosis. And tuberculosis, by God's grace, is not something we deal with here in the United States anymore. But one time I remember I was at a tuberculosis hospital in Haiti and saw what the effects were on somebody who could not get treated. had late stages of tuberculosis. And let me tell you, it is a terrible disease. And his 12-year-old boy, Claude Eli, had tuberculosis when he was 12, and so his family gathered and his church gathered, and they prayed for him, and they prayed for his health, and God granted healing to him, and he recovered and lived a life where he became a preacher and, again, a songwriter. But the story goes, when he was 12 years old, after he received healing and finally got up out of bed and got well, he spontaneously wrote and performed a song that he titled, Ain't No Grave. You probably haven't heard of it. It's probably not on your Spotify playlist, but it's very popular among country and gospel singers, and it's an old spiritual. And Johnny Cash, for example, has covered this song amongst others who are more famous. And part of the chorus of this song says this, Ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. When I hear the trumpet sound, I'm gonna rise up out of the ground. There ain't no grave gonna hold my body down. You know, perhaps one of the, one of the hopes of the gospel that we have somewhat lost in modern american christianity is that indeed ain't no grave gonna hold our body down that we actually have a hope for our bodies and a hope for our future in that way That is not just related to our forgiveness of our souls in fact verse 10 paul writes this words he says but christ is in you but christ is in you these may be the most hopeful words ever written our bodies are wrecked by sin. We travel through a creation that is stained and fallen and ruined. And even with our faith and our justification and our forgiveness and the help of the Spirit, we are not immune to the effects of the fall. We get sick. We, we break down. We get cavities. We get sad. We get old. Our bodies are as good as dead because of our sin. You know, In the Middle Ages, they used to write a Latin phrase on churches and other places called Memento Mori which means, remember too, you must die. That reality of our bodies being broken down and that we will all one day face death, they wanted to put right in front of their face because the idea was, if you knew that, it is literally morbid, you change the way you live. You change the way you approach your life here now. You change the way you approach God. This reality, though, and we pretend like it's not true, is ever before us our bodies are as good as dead because of our sin. But we are not without hope. The indwelling of spirit ensures the redemption of our bodies as well as our souls. Christ, by the power of his indestructible life, has perfected our souls and made us fit for heaven. And so too does it tell us here the spirit of Christ will raise our bodies from the grave. You know, I just want to turn your attention to one thought from verse uh, this section, verses 10 and 11. Just one thought, okay? The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, that spirit is inside of you. That's just a mind-blowing thought. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, if you are in Christ and you're a Christian, a spirit dwells in you. That spirit enables you to have victory over the flesh here and now. It gives us that hope. It gives us no condemnation, but it will give life to our mortal bodies after they are dead and decayed. You see, part of our hope is that the grave will not keep us. It's not just an Easter thing, it's every Sunday. That is our hope. We're not going to be floating spirits in heaven with a harp. We will be humans, a body and a soul together, both perfect, both free from sin and death and decay for all eternity. That is, our, that is our future. So think about that. How might that affect us now? Keeping the hope of the spirit that our bodies, though they may die, will one day rise again, that, that changes how we live. This life is not all we have. We get to look forward to having perfected bodies united with a perfect soul forever. The decay we experience, the breakdown, the physical suffering, and yes, the death, it's not the last word. Just as the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead because he was sinless, so you too, who are justified before the Father, who have the righteousness of Christ imputed on you, the Spirit will do the same for you. And by the power of Christ and the indwelling Spirit, this is our hope, this is our future, and this is why that man wrote the song Ain't No Grave. And he captured that hope. So let me end with just one little bit of that song. I'm not going to sing it. You'll have to get that. Maybe at the feast coming up next week, uh, if you want to hear that. But I think the words are just hopeful. And my prayer for us, as we go from here, we would take that hope. We would live in the reality that there is no condemnation for us. We're not under the thumb of the law. We're not under the penalty, and we're not in prison. We're free. Our minds are set free. We can live fully for God, trusting and knowing that one day our bodies will spring from the grave and be with God forever. Oh, there was a battle, a war between death and life. And there on the tree, the Lamb of God was crucified. And he went down to hell. He took back every key. He rose up as a lion, and he set all captives free. Ain't no grave going to hold my body down. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this word that teaches us and encourages us. Father, as we leave here today, would your spirit would your spirit send these truths deep into our hearts and mind that we would live for you and your glory, Father. Help us. Help us to live under the mindset of the spirit. Help us to live as your free children crying out, Abba, Father, knowing that you seek and you have given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. Lord, set our hope, set our desires, the affections of our heart, all that we are on you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.